We talk a lot in Heart, Soul, and Data about the human aspects of data. And today's guest, Dr. Kim Hunt, is going to walk us through a framework of cultural competency around data. The idea that our data work can never be separated from who we are as people and the experiences that we bring to the table. And that really isn't a bug, it's a feature, but it's a feature we need to be aware of and understand how it impacts the work that we do with data. So she walks us through some key aspects of who we are as people in our data work that we need to be aware of so that we can moderate any unintended consequences or downsides of that humanness that we bring to our work. Hello, and welcome to Heart, Soul, and Data, where we explore the human side of analytics to help amplify the impacts of those out to change the world with me, Alexandra Mannering. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kim. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. We're going to bring in a lot of really interesting components around culture with data. And I think it's easy to just view data as cultureless when we know, in fact, it's not. So before we get started, do you mind talking a little bit about how you found your way to data and your background and what you do? Thank you. It's great to be here, Alexandra. I really appreciate the time to speak with you and to talk about data and to talk about evaluation. So I am Kim Hunt. My journey to data actually began very young age. I've always been sort of a, a person who is interested in math and science and teaching also was a big, a big passion. And so my trajectory was initially headed towards working in the field of economics, and then my husband joined the Navy, and off we went on 16 moves in 21 years around the U.S. and around the world. And in that time, gaining an understanding and an appreciation for things that were different, very different from the way we were raised. We were raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, very diverse, inclusive type of area, and we moved to areas that were not so much so and it became very apparent very early on that this was the case. And then, of course, joining into the military, that itself was its own culture, which we it was a huge learning curve, did not come from a military family background at all. So that was a huge cultural learning curve as well. And then living overseas and being that guest in somebody else's country also gives you a very different perspective. And so eventually my love of teaching and my love of data sort of merged because I would see very interesting patterns, especially in the children developing military children who moved often, third culture kids in the international schools that we were a part of moving often. And I could see that there were these negative narratives being built around many of these children and their experiences, but that wasn't what I was observing. And as a teacher, a teacher is always part researcher because you're always looking and observing and figuring out ways that you can make things better for your students, make things better for the school, make things easier on yourself as a teacher to make sure that all the kids have what they need. And so it just sort of eventually morphed into, I'm going to really explore this phenomenon that I'm seeing. What am I seeing that the literature isn't seeing? And so that led me to deciding I wanted to pursue my PhD in sociology because I thought this was more of a sociological sort of bend to what was going on. But then I had the opportunity to visit a PhD program that I eventually came into, and it was a leadership program, which merged both the nonprofit interests that I had and the education interests that I had. So I was able to take both of those sort of concentrations and put them under the leadership lens. 
And while I was working on my dissertation, I started working for the nonprofit institute at our university. And because I was the only one with lived experience in the military community, I was always the lead on all the evaluation projects. So as I was working there, both during my doctoral program and also postdoc, I just the love of evaluation and it combined everything, combined the heart, you know, the stories that pull at the heartstrings, the data, being able to help others, being able to teach others. Because when we're evaluating, we're also helping an organization to learn ways in which they can improve things they might want to continue and just be able to tell their own story of what this intervention or program or whatever it is that they are doing the evaluation for, where that's headed. And so that sort of brought me then eventually to work in my own consulting firm and consult with primarily both education is a big focus and military and veteran service organizations are a big focus. But I still have not lost my love of working around third culture because I think that that's such a unique space so I've actually been a part of an organization for six or seven years now, that that is what it's all about. It's, it's about families that are part of this global nomad sort of lifestyle. And it's very interesting. And I know before we got started, we were talking about having different kinds of backgrounds coming into data. And so I love hearing about the fact that I, I, I so agree with this teaching is always part researcher, right? And that we don't always appreciate and acknowledge and recognize that a lot of the work that quote unquote non-data people do actually really is data work. It is science. It is asking questions. And the idea that you were looking for data to be able to combat these inaccurate narratives that you said, no, I, I don't want to just say it in my gut, these feel wrong, but actually I can establish patterns. I can show that these narratives are not completely accurate and they can be damaging when you have those inaccurate narratives. Absolutely. And I think that's part of cultural competence, right? And that the evaluation or the, the research that's being done is being done with the lens of the human being who is conducting the research and designing the research. And one of the things that, that I found that was particularly striking was all of the data and the research and the literature was coming out of the mental health field. So it was coming from people who only saw a subsection of the population. And so they formed their entire idea and their entire sort of stereotyping on the subset of the population that they were studying. And it made sense. That was all they saw. And so that really led me to think about the idea of how do we bring our own biases into these research studies and evaluations? Even the questions we asked are very much driven by who we are and where we come from. Um, so one of the first things I'll do when I look at an organization that I'm working on with evaluation is I ask to meet their board and to see their board. And if their board, if they're working with refugee children and their board is completely filled with white faces or faces that, or no accents, I immediately, that's a red flag. And in particular, one organization that I had this conversation with, she sort of bristled and said, oh, well, they would think it was unfair if I asked one and not all. And I said, that's interesting. I said, my perspective is not all would want to do this, but I'm sure you have a few that you clients that you've worked with 
who would just jump at the chance to be on the board and help direct how the direction you're headed and some of the interventions you're looking at and some of the designs you're looking at. And it's, it's sometimes is a very hard conversation to have. And other times it's a light bulb and they don't realize what has been before them all along. And that's much easier to work with because they're very open and it's a little more difficult that you have to dig back and research and, and present them with why this is important. I have an uncle who's an emergency physician and is just retired. He was an emergency physician for like 50 years. And he was always convinced everything was going to kill you. Like trampolines murder children. You know, because again, as like an emergency doc in L.A., he would see the worst of things. Like no one who was having fun on a trampoline ended up in his ED. You know, you only ended up there when you shattered your leg falling off of it. And so I love that idea that, yes, like your lived experience when you you, you can't not bring that to the research you do. It's just who you are and we, we're not robots, but it is going to give you a certain lens of the questions you think are important to ask. And you may not even see the questions that you've never been exposed to. And so your idea of looking at the board of the nonprofits, a lot of people would say, why you're an evaluator? Why do you care at all what the board looks like? But to your point, it's this is going to drive the evaluation questions you ask. And if your board all comes from one background or one lived experience, they may not think of the questions that actually are going to move the needle on your programs, or you may be measuring the wrong thing. You may be measuring something that you think is the important success, but you're not paying attention to some unintended consequence you're not aware of, or you're actually not seeking the most impactful success. Absolutely. Yes. And and also it's it's a way to, to make sure that the client knows that they're being heard. And instead of having that sort of mentality of, we're going to come in and fix the problem for you. Mm-hmm. We're going to work with you mm-hmm. to hear what you have to say mm-hmm. to help support you and put those tools in place to make it happen. And that that is the first step in that conversation. And then with a more representative board and a board that has at least some representation from the client population they're pulling from, what you'll then get is you'll get, like you mentioned, those questions, those burning questions and what it is that people need or want rather than being told what they need Mm -hmm. or want. There's been a big movement in the hospital space, which is one that I have a lot of familiarity with, of having these patient councils, right? That you should have a patient representative on your board. You should have a council that reviews things that happen in the hospital from the patient perspective. And that the people on this should be patients from your hospital. And better yet, if those are patients that maybe had a negative experience with your hospital, right? The patients who unfortunately either were family of or they themselves had like an adverse event at your hospital because they will have a perspective that your doctors just don't have. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting that I've seen so many stories of doctors who became a patient for the first time and they've practiced medicine and then they were a patient when they, you know, developed a cancer, unfortunately, or something happened and they just went, holy moly, I did not realize what it was like. And they've spent their whole career around patients and they never realized what it actually meant to be a patient. And I think this leads into a question I'm really excited to ask you, which is, I think when we think about having diversity on boards, we might immediately think about a lot of the diversity we talk about, like gender diversity, racial diversity. But if we're talking about diversity of like patients versus doctor experience, we really mean something much more broadly than that. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what we even mean by culture when it comes to being competent in in doing evaluation around culture? 
that's a very good point, in particular, looking at the military culture. Um, so a culture is basically all those norms that a society or a culture brings together. So they can be ways of speaking, it could be language, it could be dress, it could be different symbols, it could be different celebration, it could have religious meaning. There's everything that you bring to your life is a part of that culture, and each culture is unique. I found it interesting that when I would speak to those without lived military experience and you would ask them, you'd give them a definition of culture and they would say, oh, it's not culture. And you would give that definition to anyone with lived experience. Oh, yeah, definitely. Military has its own own language, has its own dress, has its own norms and and ways of speaking. And it just it, it is it's very different. And to be able to sort of open up your aperture and realize that there's more to inclusion and diversity than what meets the eye. I've mentioned refugees. Refugees can come from anywhere. So the person sitting on the board may look like they don't have anything to do with a refugee population. But then when you start speaking to them, they may have, very well have, very lived experience. And so it's more important to look at the population you're serving rather than the population as a whole. And so you'll want to at least have some representation from the population you're serving. And also as you're developing your data collection tools, surveys, interview protocols, focus protocols, it's really important, you know, what's a faux pas, right? What what might I say that would really be not okay or offensive or just inappropriate or however you want to say it, even hand gestures. Living in Germany, we found there were Children raise their hand in school very differently. And it has to do with their culture and their past. And if I would raise my hand in the same way we raise the hands here in the States, it would look somewhat offensive in a German school. And so those kind of things are things that are really important. You need to know the population that the organization is serving. And that is how you become more inclusive within that board. The staff as well. The staff may not have to have every bit of lived experience, but they should have cultural competence. They should be trained in what is important for the particular culture they're working with or cultures. And oftentimes that's what we see. We don't see just one culture in a population. We see multiple cultures. And so it has a lot to do with what exactly you're looking for and what you're trying to do and what needle you're trying to move. I think that can be one of the really complicated parts once you become aware of this, because I think this is a don't know, we don't know for a lot of organizations. But once you move into that space of it's a known that we don't know it, and they try to start bringing in some more of that cultural competency, that what can happen is that there's a desire to just say, give me the playbook. Tell me, you know, what I need to do, that I know how to properly raise my hand at class. Like if you just give me the playbook, we'll be okay. And we can understand this. And I was thinking I work with some collaborations among organizations that support Native students. And they talk about how diverse Indian country is, right? This idea that if I, you know, am an Oglala Sioux, can I really speak for the experiences and the culture and the representation of the Navajo? But we sort of lump all of them together and say, oh, this is the Native experience or this is the Native culture. And they're wildly different cultures. Yes. And so, yes, to say like, no, I'm sorry, I can't necessarily give you one playbook. And even if I could right, Germans are going to all think differently. So you might know a few things that apply to all Germans, but you're going to have to just approach this from a point of view of openness and learning and that 
yes, there's going to be nuances that not everyone agrees on. And how do we kind of navigate that? So I don't know, do you have any advice for organizations having to navigate that incredibly tumultuous water? Well, the first thing I would do is get to know your clients, get to know them as people and individuals. A lot of times, especially in the nonprofit space, organizations are created to solve a problem. And so the focus is on the problem and not on the people. And although the mission is in the right place, the heart is in the right place, to focus on just the problem means you will miss those nuances. You will miss those pieces of what's important to that population. So yeah, I think I think the primary thing is make sure that you understand your clients. And I think, so we've been talking a lot about creating an approach for culturally competent evaluation. And I do really like that idea that step one, do you have representation? Like, do you even have a place where you could talk to members of your client population and your client culture? And then get to know the people that you serve as people, not just as recipients of a problem, you know, or sufferers from a problem that you're trying to solve, but truly as people. Then when you've taken those steps and hopefully you have started to develop personal relationships and personal insights around the group that your organization exists to serve, what are the next steps into really making sure that your evaluation is culturally competent? I think the next step then is to then identify and ask members of the population who may be an advisor to you. They could be an advisor to the board. They could also be an advisor to you as you're building your evaluation, as you're creating your tools, as you're creating your research question. They can also be your foot in the door, so to speak. If you don't have that lived experience, you don't always come to a place where somebody is comfortable opening up to you about what their real experience is. And oftentimes when you're evaluating an organization, sometimes the population that they're serving is very vulnerable and they may not understand that being honest and open about what's going on is going to actually help the organization help them. They may feel they're this organization has done so much to help me, I can't say anything negative about them. If I say something negative, that's really bad, or maybe I won't get services, or maybe they'll shut them down. And if you have someone within your team who can sort of act as that liaison and say, no, this is, the organization wants to learn, wants to learn how to improve and open up that space a little bit so it's a little more comfortable and a little safer And I think that that is really key. When I'm working on any sort of evaluation, I always try to bring in at least one or two, I call them advisors, to the evaluation. And they are culturally competent Mm -hmm. in, and also language too. I would never try, I'm not a native speaker of any other language except English. And no matter how well I speak some languages, I don't, that native nuance is really important. And so if I'm working with a group or an organization that is focused on a particular population that has a different language, then having advisors that have that language knowledge is also important. And so language is also a diversity and something, especially here in Southern California, you have to always be aware of that, you know, California is very diverse and inclusive and you need to make sure you have those on your team who can help sort of be that liaison and that opening that door into the community and making people feel comfortable talking to you. And that's that's always been something that's really important. That was one of the reasons, although I was interested in all highly mobile populations, refugee children, migrant children, foster children, third culture kids, I had lived experience 
in the military culture. And I knew that I could start my research there and expand it later to other populations because I had that sort of, um, for lack of a better term, street cred. And you actually knew what they were going through and they didn't have to explain their whole life to you. And that's very helpful. And it's, it lowers the barriers then to being able to access what they need. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think the language competency as a subset of the cultural competency is really important. You have, of course, the possibility that you miss critical people just because it's not translated, right? It's not accessible in the language that they speak, read, or understand. But also that language competency of you might miss people because you offend them with the language that they use, or they can tell from the way the, the words that you've used or the structures of the things that you're communicating, oh, this person doesn't get it. And so having that competency of saying, I can connect you with the street cred to say, like, I get you. This is a space that you'll be safe. And, and understood is really, really important. So as organizations are starting, again, to sort of move into awareness of this issue, tackling some of these challenges around culturally competent evaluation, and I think your your whole approach you know, is very reminiscent of the participatory data analysis, right? Bringing in people who have that experience to help guide, and I love the idea of the advisor, that it's not just about interpreting the data at the end, but help us make sure we're asking the right questions, that we're collecting the data in an appropriate way that isn't going to mislead us. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see organizations make as they start to make, you know, move along and and try to implement some of these things? I think one of the mistakes that's made is actually what you alluded to in the first place, that with the Native American tribes, each one is different. Each one has its own unique culture within this larger culture of Native Americans. One of the reasons they're trying to disaggregate Asian data, because you can't say that someone's experience in Laos is going to be exactly the same as somebody's experience from Japan. Very different cultures, very different histories. And so I think that's one of the things is to make sure that you're not trying to blanket statement, oh, I have this one person who can speak Spanish. So that's going to be the same, whether they're Mexican or Colombian or Puerto Rican or Spanish. It's going to be the same. And you have to understand what the limitations are. You can't have odds are. You can't have someone from each one of those groups, but you can certainly make sure that each one of those groups is represented in your focus groups or your interviews or your surveys. Mm -hmm. And the person who is working as your translator, then you need to work with them to be culturally competent in the idea that they need to maybe test out a focus group protocol and bring in people from different dialects of that language and make sure because the same word may have entirely different meanings, even in the same language, but a different dialect. And I'm assuming, I don't know much about Native American language, but I'm assuming the same thing pretty much holds that there's these nuances within the words that you can say a word and it's the same word, but it means something entirely different. And that's because it morphs over time as the culture morphs. And so, yeah, that is something that I think is probably the biggest mistake. Oh, we have someone as our advisor. We're done. We did it. We crossed that, you know, crossed that T, dotted that I. And it also never stops. It's always evolving. For instance, refugee population is a very large population here in the San Diego area where where I'm currently living. But the different waves of refugees are very different. Right now, the Ukrainian refugees look very different from the Somalis who are here or the Afghanis who are coming. And each one has their own culture. So you can't say, okay, well, we have this refugee culture and we're going to take care of all refugees with this culture. No, you have to like look at those, those nuances within those cultures 
and realize that you may not be able to represent everyone with an advisor, but taking those first steps, don't beat yourself up over not being able to do them all. Taking those first steps are really important. And then there's that awareness. I think this idea of just being open and iterative and asking questions and not just making assumptions. And I was laughing about the nuances of language because so I, I got my degree in the UK. So I, I speak English. The UK speaks English. And I remember being there like three days in my new lab and asking my supervisor about dress code and saying, like, would it be appropriate, you know, if I wore like a white shirt and black pants to the meeting. And he like sniggers and was like, I'm sure that would be fine, but I don't know why you're asking me. And of course, in the UK, pants mean underwear. (laughs) They do not mean the things that go on your legs. Those are trousers. And so like immediately I'd put my foot in my mouth because I didn't understand the nuance of that language. But even further, my husband, who is British, talks about, you know, like he knows a lot of the English words, but there's a whole other sex like Cockney rhyming slang. That's a completely different way of talking. And he might live 10 miles from somebody who has that, but he knows nothing about how to actually speak in that particular dialect or with that set of slang. And so just being open and aware of these places where you might stumble in and having the humility when you do stumble into them to sort of recognize it and fix it rather than thinking that I can just know everything about a culture, know everything about this. And that iterative process that just never stops. It's constantly evaluating, creating openness to get feedback when you do make those mistakes and adjust them and moving forward. So I think that it is such a learning place constantly. Absolutely. And I I laughed at that because we lived in the UK for three and a half years. So I completely understand that. (laughs) We we all made it. So yes, Yes. uh, we we often would say, right, uh, two countries, same language, you know, separated by a language, right? A common language. A common language, right. And so that is very true. Those nuances within the language are really important. But the thing that you mentioned, the iterative process, the being willing to take in the learnings and then also apply those learnings later on. One of the things that that always sort of is a mistake that people make is I look like this. My experience is this. So I cannot study an organization that's working with this population. No, it's that you need to have that humility. You need to have that openness and that understanding. And you need to convey to those you are talking to that I don't walk in your footsteps. And I completely understand I don't walk in your footsteps. I have this skill set that I can help tell your story. I can help bring forth what it is you want to say and what you need with your help. And then that is really the first step. And what I have found is no matter how many mistakes you make, People are forgiving if they understand that you're open and you're willing and mm-hmm. you want to learn. Mm-hmm. And that's the important piece. And never to come into somebody else's culture and act like you understand it completely ever. Because unless we walk in someone else's shoes, we don't. But I think that that's even true of the experiences we do own. Like I think about mm-hmm. the fact of like my lived experience as a woman and that sometimes I listen to other women speak as if they like own the lived experience of women. And I'm like, I don't know what you're lived, but that's not describing my experience. Like, no, we, we're totally different on this. And it's not that they're wrong. We just have different, we happen to have different sets of experiences or different perspectives of those experiences. So even when you do represent that group, to not like plant your flag and say, I own the story of this experience for all people who fall into it. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that comes up in the military community. If you are studying 
all military children and you're talking to all Navy children, you are not going to have a story because each branch within the military is also its own culture. And whether you're talking to children who've moved a lot, children who've never moved, children who've gone through deployment, have not gone through deployment, children of wounded warriors versus not, those are all different experiences that unless you understand that those are different experiences. And one of the other things you can do is because you cannot, in some instances, some instances you can, but most instances you cannot cover all of the nuances in the population you're serving with just one or two advisors. One of the things you can do is you can member check, right? You can go back to the individuals that were part of a focus group, that were part of a survey, and then you can either talk to them individually or talk to them in a group and say, this is what I heard. Please tell me if I'm correct. And that was one of the things with studying highly mobile military children. I did not want to put our family's experiences over the top. So when I collected all of the data and I had written out that chapter, I sent it to all of my participants and I made sure, did I capture you? Did I tell your story? And that's important because as you mentioned, it's very easy for us to bring our own experience in and go, oh, everyone that looks like me has had the same exact experience. Nope, not at all. We're all individuals. And so we will never capture every single nuance, but that idea of just taking those extra time, building that time into an evaluation, even an evaluation that's a really quick turnaround, take the time to go back through that process of checking back and making sure, did I hear you correctly? Am I conveying what you said? And I think at this point that some of the practitioners in the data side sort of feel like throwing their hands up and being like, if everybody's story is unique, like what's the point of data then? Right. If it's a one to one to one to one, right, they're all individual. How could I possibly aggregate or do any kind of study in a way that would be respectful and still meaningful? And so I'm curious what what your answer to that would be. There's a couple of different things. One, you're going to see trends that just tell you about an experience overall whether it's exactly the same or not, an experience of, you know, moving 15 times in your K through 12 years. It is going to look, obviously look very different depending on where you moved, who you moved with, whether you had siblings or not, whether you were the oldest, youngest, middle. However, there's certain things that will look the same and will sort of develop these trends. So data saturization is really important when you think you have way too many stories. So data saturization is also really important because when you're starting to hear the same sort of narrative, maybe not, you know, every word for word, but a very similar narrative over and over again, then you realize you've got it. You've at least have those things. And the nuances, those can come out in quotes that that can support your data. I'm very biased and I, I really prefer mixed methods approaches. Because not everyone can read a quantitative study and understand that quantitative study. When you just have a qualitative study, as much as I love qualitative studies, they get pushed aside oftentimes in the research world because people will say, well, how many people? Was it significant? And what were the relationships and correlations between this and that? And so I've always been of the mindset that mixed methods is the way to go, particularly for evaluations, because you're going to have such a wide audience that you're going to present your findings to. And some audiences will want that huge data deep dive. They'll want to know your methodology. Mm-hmm. They want to know, you know, what your P value is. They, they want to know all of these things, right? Whereas someone else 
sitting on your boards, I have no idea what that means. Just tell me what it means. And then that's where your frequencies and your larger generalizations supported mm-hmm. with the qualitative data can help someone understand what it is you're saying. And I think, sorry, we, we went way far off that, but, but I think what it is, is that sort of triangulation of data. The data saturation, making sure what you're hearing is what's being said, or what, what you're hearing is, is what they said, the population that you're serving or population that your organization is serving, making sure that the data is, is really reaching that point of making these trends and seeing some of these larger pieces. And then the one thing that researchers always love to do is questions. I didn't answer every question because there were all these things going on, but there was this odd thing that came up with just a few people. And that might be something worth exploring with a larger population who have more in common. And so I know this is more researchy based than particularly evaluation, but I think that evaluation and evaluation cannot be done without proper research and proper research needs good evaluations to be done especially when you're looking at evidence-based practices. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that sort of triangulation and making sure that you are setting that stage, but absolutely, you're always going to have exceptions to every rule, no matter how good your data is. I really appreciate that triangulation idea where data are a critical but not sufficient part, right? That the data have a very important role because yeah, you're not going to be able to answer a question like, does our program work simply by just having a collection of like asking each person and having a story and listening to their story. If you don't apply some kind of analysis to that to say as a whole, is our program accomplishing X goal or, or Y outcome? An analysis has to be there to roll up those individual experiences into that collective answer. And so that corner of this, you know, one of the three legs of the stool has to be the data and the quantitative analysis of some kind. But understanding that the stories and those individual perspectives are still really important. And I love, you know, the idea of ending with questions that you can't expect or go into a research project or an evaluation saying, we're going to capture everything and we're going to understand everything. No, actually, and to your point, you don't want to capture everything. You don't want to have all the data and no point for it. So you need to get really clear what is the thing we're trying to answer? What are going to be the analytical methods we'll use to answer that question? And then how do we make sure that we're capturing the key stories and insights and individual experiences that will highlight and illustrate the real deep findings that we have that are powered by that analytical approach? So thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. This is such, I think, an important topic that we do sometimes not know how to have that conversation about. So I really appreciate your time. And I don't want to take you away from reading your story to your granddaughter any longer. Thank you. And thank you for the time as well. This was really, I really enjoyed our time talking. I love talking about research and evaluation and, you know, being able to share things that are helpful to one another. I think that's really important. Absolutely. One piece of information I learned that I really enjoyed was this idea of how broad culture really is, the concept of culture. We're not just talking about your country of origin, but the idea that the military does have a distinct culture and that many subgroups have these distinct cultures that we need to be aware of. And when we narrowly define what constitutes a culture, we're going to end up in hot water pretty quickly with mistakes that we make in our analysis because we aren't understanding these cultural nuances in how we collect data, how we interpret data. 
I also appreciated the combination of awareness of needing to bring in representatives of communities and cultures that you serve, whether it's on the board, whether it's in participatory data analysis, but giving a place for the voice of your clients, the people that you connect to and serve, to be directly represented. But on the flip side, just because you aren't a full-fledged member of a particular community doesn't mean that you can't provide value and you can't be engaged in that work. You just need to have some awareness of where your shortcomings might be. You need to work extra hard to be more aware of the culture that you are heading into. And again, you can use advisors to help you understand that, but it doesn't mean that we only can work within our own cultures. Because again, diversity of perspectives and insights adds layers to our analysis, adds depth and richness to the insights that we can create. I also appreciated the triangulation approach, the idea that no one person can be completely representative of a community, just as no one data point can be completely representative of a culture. And so the idea is that you use different kinds of data, qualitative, quantitative, mixed method approaches, different ways of collecting and talking and learning that you can put together to get closer to the underlying truth that you're seeking. The fact that this is an iterative process really cannot be emphasized enough. This is never work that is just one and done. So I hope that you can find ways to bring a broader awareness to how you engage in different cultures and communities and find ways to integrate different points of view, different members and representatives of those cultures and communities and be a little bit more aware of what really constitutes a culture and community, not just the way that we look, but the idea of rural versus urban being really a culture difference. Lots of ideas in that way of thinking about how there might be understandings or approaches or perspectives of the world that would be important to bring in to how you collect data, how you analyze data, how you interpret data. So thank you so much for joining me today. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation as well. And please, if you find the work that we're doing here valuable, leave a comment, leave a review, and tell someone that you know about this so they can join in in the conversation. These conversations only get better with the more people we have involved. I wish you the best. Breathe deep. Seek peace. You have been listening to Heart, Soul, and Data. This podcast is brought to you by Moroccanus, an analytics education, consulting, and data services company devoted to helping nonprofits and social enterprises amplify their impacts and thrive through data. You can learn more at Moroccanos.com, M-E-R-A-K-I-N-O-S.com.